Hello and welcome to For the Love of Truth. This is episode 283 and I've given it the title Digital Identity. What is the real question that you should be asking? In this episode, I'm going to be narrating a document to you that I found online that is about digital identity. I think it's one of the most important documents that I've ever come across because it's the only document I've read that gets right to the cause of the problem. And just like with health, where you can never make any progress when you're busy focusing on the effect, the symptom, it's the same in this instance, where you really want to get down to the very root of what's going on so that you can then start to separate fiction from reality. As I narrate this document, there are some phrases in Latin, and I will do my best to pronounce them correctly, but it has been many decades since I studied Latin, so I may make a real hash of this. If you want to look at the original PDF, please visit the link in the description of this podcast. That will take you to my website, and there will be a downloadable version of the PDF there for you to have a look at. I would encourage you to take the time to look at the citations and read up for yourself what is being talked about in this document, and then you can ask your own questions and draw your own conclusions from this. Digital Identity, a dream house built on swampy foundations. A motivational amicus curiae to the participants of Davos 2023. Vision of Digital Identity. In August 2016, the World Economic Forum, in cooperation with Deloitte, published presentation A Blueprint for Digital Identity. And in September 2018, the World Economic Forum published a report, Identity in a Digital World. The documents provide important insights into how government-issued identities work and how various identity management solutions are being built and tested around the world. Both documents, however, fail to address the fundamental question of how is a government-issued identity created to begin with, and if the foundation of it is unbreakable or perhaps more akin to a pile of fly-ash bricks on swampland. To start with, let's look at what the government-issued identity is. Etymology of the term identity suggests its sameness, or state of being the same. Being same as something, even without defining what that thing is, suggests logically existence of two distinct things, one being the same with another. Turning words to action... Identifying means to perceive the identity of something or to ascertain the identity of something. It sounds as if the one identifying as a government-issued identity is ascertaining oneself as being the same as it, whatever it is. If that's the case, one should inquire into how this thing was created. Let's see what the World Economic Forum report says on that. On page 14 of the World Economic Forum report, discussing the various actors in a digital identity ecosystem, it states, The controller, or delegate of the identity data, typically a trust anchor, such as government, that issues and or has the ability to control the identity data. If a government issues, that is, creates the identity data, and has the ability to control the data, a government creates and controls the nature of that identity itself. The question of what it is that one is supposed to identify as just became a lot more interesting. I don't have to identify as myself. 
since I am. Identifying something else is an acknowledgement, a legal act, of ascertaining oneself as being the same as that thing created by someone. To a certain point, it is self-evident that the government-issued identity, which one is casually expected to identify as, is an entry in the population information system. All tangible identity documents, and the digital identities as well, point to that entry in the population information system. Since database entries are not created by a mere force of nature, we need to identify what information is provided to the government and by whom in order for the government to create an accurate entry in a population information system. How and when do the database entries come to be, and who creates them? Who exactly is the issuer, and by what authority? Before exploring these questions, let's quickly see what the previously cited World Economic Forum document, A Blueprint for Digital Identity, says about this. An illustration on page 32 about the critical nature of identity, a question is asked, how do I know this entity is what it claims to be? I suppose the question refers to the reliability of someone identifying as a citizen in the population information system. Notice that there is someone making a claim of identity, which is then compared to something, in order to verify that claim. On page 57, it states... The Population Register is a national database that is owned and maintained by the Finnish government. The same principle applies to other countries with slightly different terminology. On page 83, it states, Citizens are required to provide up-to-date information to the Population Registry, such that IDPs, IDPS, can trust that the information they are receiving is accurate. Rephrasing what the statements imply... A government creates and controls a database, and people are expected not only to identify as entries in that database, but also to make sure the information on the database is accurate. So far, we cannot do that, since we have not yet established how did that database entry came to be. Unfortunately, the World Economic Forum documents do not provide any details about the process of how the database entry is created, or what information it is based on. The document only focuses on how to efficiently use the data for accurate identification. Can we accept the accuracy of the data on the population information system without knowing exactly what is the source and substance of the information that was used to create those database entries, also known as the registered persons? That sounds like a giant leap of faith or a mere assumption. Let's dig deeper. It is well established that the population register entries are created based on notifications sent to the population registry by churches, hospitals and magistrates, which got the information partially from the parents as informants and partially from other officials who supposedly witnessed something. The interesting detail about this chain of information is that the notification to the population register is not given and signed by the one who the entry is supposed to identify, and not even by the one's parents, although the parents are sources of some of the information, such as the name. The notification is signed by officials, so it seems to be a legal notification of something having happened, which some official observed and certifies. Also, 
These notifications that are either in paper or electronic form contain only information that follows the format of a template, designed, drafted and filled out by government officials. Most people have never actually seen these documents, but they are supposed later to certify the accuracy of the content of these documents as accurate, so that they can be reliably identified as the registered person on their ID document. I recommend everyone to go get copies of these documents to check if they actually are any use for identifying anyone or if you can honestly ascertain the substance of these documents being truthful. I did get them and I cannot certify them being truthful. If you get an apostille for a copy of a birth certificate from the population register, the apostille states, this apostille does not certify the content of the document for which it was issued meaning that the state official in charge of the population register is not able to certify your identity based on the documents which were the foundation of the population information system entry. Additionally, the actual notification document that is used as the basis of the population register entry does not contain any biometric information. It does not identify anything biological. It is merely a notification of an event having occurred. That event is habitually known as the birth. This is where your active participation is required to establish a link, or a bond if you want, between the government-created identity of something that was born on a specific day and you. You need to identify as that registered person. You need to identify as something that came into existence on that day, in that event. Your act or conduct in relation to this government-created character, which came into existence on its birthday, is deemed to give life to the database entry. The self-evident logical problem is, I did not come into existence on that day. I existed already about nine months before that. Now I'm starting to see why my active participation is needed to establish the presumption that I am the same as the registered person. We'll be back after a quick break. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. The Experts If this seems fanciful, let's see what some other leading experts on the subject say about this. In 21 to 24 April 2015, an event called the Hague Colloquium on the Future of Legal Identity was organized. In it, a definition of legal identity was presented from the United Nations ESCAP Asia-Pacific Population Journal, November 2014, number one, which states on page 77, while bearing in mind this absence of a universally accepted and applied definition, legal identity may be defined as the recognition of a person's existence before the law, facilitating the realization of specific rights and corresponding duties. Firstly, 
they admit that the most fundamental building block of human rights, the legal identity, is not even universally defined. Secondly, they imply in very specific terms that it is a recognition of a person's existence, which in itself does not mean much. Harry Potter is a person that exists. I've seen pictures of him. The question is, what's the nature of that person, fiction or reality? Thirdly, while leaving the actual substance of this government-created identity in the air, they nonetheless declare that it facilitates the realization of specific rights and duties. This seems to imply that the rights and duties referred to are something specific to that government-created identity, something else than the inherent intrinsic rights of a man or woman, whose creation does not require participation by government officials. In the following sentence, even more is revealed. Legal identity, evidenced by legal documentation that is produced on the basis of the registration of vital events. The identity is produced by the state on the basis of a vital event. What specific vital event is registered and by whom? The journal does not elaborate on that. But Merriam-Webster Dictionary confirms that vital can mean something concerning life or destructive to life, mortal. One would expect to find birth or beginning of life in direct association with this recorded vital event, but one doesn't. Another participant of the colloquium describes the legal identity as conceived as status. Note, not status, just thought of as status. What could be a vital or mortal event, which is thought of as status, but is clearly distinct from me? Since I am, and breathe, I can conceive that the status is a death, a status of a lifeless, fictitious, juristic person, such as a corporation, brought to apparent life through representation of living beings identifying as it. A legal maxim comes to mind. Affirmatio unius exclusio est alterius. The affirmation of one thing is the exclusion of the other. If I affirm to be the same as a lifeless database entry, which has its own distinct rights, wouldn't I be affirming that I am not acting in capacity of a living being? That sounds pretty serious, almost as a question of life and death. Another definition of legal identity was given at the colloquium by a representative of the Inter-American Development Bank, citing its publicly available Civil Registration and Identification Glossary. Legal Identity Legal civil status obtained through birth registration and civil identification that recognizes the individual as a subject of law and protection of the state. So now, two things are required for the legal identity. The registration of the birth or death event and civil identification of someone ascertaining the sameness with the registered person. Those combined create recognition of the individual as a subject of law, presumably with the rights and duties defined for that registered person, that government-issued identity. This is quite close to my earlier observation in that the proactive civil identification is required, as it seems that the government itself cannot provide that. The holder of the identity card has to identify as before the rights and duties apply. 
We all know it's almost impossible to deal with government officials if you do not first identify as, or as they like to say, establish your identity. Strangely enough, the results of the interaction with the officials seems to be more desirable when one establishes an identity which is not the government-issued one. Sometimes the interaction even, thank God, ends there. On an additional note, the same glossary defines abortion as the spontaneous or intentional ending of a pregnancy. Does not birth end pregnancy spontaneously? Just wondering why they worded it like that. What seems a lot more clear now is that even the people who define the concept of legal identity and issue identity documents to facilitate the realisation of rights and duties seem to know that the rights and duties are distinct from the rights and duties of someone who is not identifying as a registered person. The necessary question arises, which rights are human rights? The ones inherent to any man and woman irrespective of government, or the ones obtained by identifying as a registered person? The builders of the system are not very specific on this. The colloquium observer mentioned above concludes that using a registered identity is provision of evidence of status as a means of unlocking rights. But we're still left wondering why does one need evidence created by an unknown official, such as an identity card, to prove or unlock rights if they are supposed to be inherent? The necessary implication is again that the rights and duties of the government-issued identity unlocks when one identifies as it, and are not the inherent rights of any living man or woman. Isn't the fact of being alive the only self-evident fact that is required to observe the fundamental rights? Given that, the government-issued identity starts looking more and more like a fictitious Harry Potter mask, facilitating alteration and not respect of one's inherent rights. United Nations Human Rights Council has stated in its resolution AHRC 28L23 that unregistered individuals may have limited or no access to services and enjoyment of all rights to which they're entitled, and that birth registration is of fundamental importance as a means of providing an official record of the existence of a person and recognition of that individual as a person before the law. That statement sounds partially as a baseless threat of withholding access to public services while acknowledging that people are entitled to them. And partially, it once more confirms the distinction between the person and the individual who is recognised as it. Remembering that identity is a status, the distinction between the two necessarily means that identifying as the registered person alters the status that all of us fundamentally have without any effort other than being here and breathing. Finally, the colloquium of experts in legal identity discussed the distinction between nationality and legal identity. One participant from Africa explained that the requirement of legal identity is creating stateless persons where previously they were only undocumented ones, highlighting beautifully the fact that the government-issued identity is a mechanism for altering a status of someone who uses it. Forcing the identification as, by threats or orders such as, papers please, would void the entire act of its legal effects, as the act of identifying as, done under duress, would lose its reliability. Although they prefer to not clearly define it, 
for rather obvious reasons. Coercing or luring one into proactively altering one's inherent rights might work better if they can make it sound cool, modern and convenient. Scan your QR code, please. Spoken in a beautifully resonating machine voice is much more pleasant than someone in a uniform shouting, Papers! The Foundations What has bothered me for some time is the question whether there actually is any physical or biological link between the registered legal identity issued by the government and me. Or is the legal identity purely fictitious character that I am coerced into identifying as, to wear the mask of, with the legal effect of alteration of my status? I'm not talking about fingerprints or DNA samples taken from me and registered as supposedly belonging to the registered person. I'm talking about the initial authority of the government to create a legal status, a registered person that they deem to be me. I only saw two potential options. Either the registered person is pure fiction, and me identifying as is akin to me implying consent to participate in a perverse cosplay, or there is some physical link between me and the registration, which gives plausible weight to the presumption that the registration somehow relates to me. One day, contemplating my navel, I asked myself, what am I missing here? And immediately realised that the answer was physically right under my nose. The nasty scar in the middle of my belly was the material evidence of the events that occurred on the day the registered person was born. I was missing my placenta, ecumenically and biologically better known as the amnion. I immediately pulled out the breeder documents from the hospital and saw that indeed they evidenced the fact that the amnion went missing on its very first birthday. Imagine the coincidence that the placenta, in Swedish is morakaka, the mother cake, has gone missing on the very first birthday after mum worked so hard for nine months to make it. Now, since my navel evidence is the organ removal... Could it be that it was the thing born on that day, since I existed before that day? Considered separately from me, could anyone say that once separate from me, the placenta began its own life, or was born? Well, in literary narratives of science fiction, anything is possible. Aliens, sea monsters, Frankensteins, as long as someone believes in them. So what happened to the organ? Dude, where's my placenta? To my big surprise, the hospital officials turned extremely rude when I started making inquiries into the chain of custody documentation of my removed organ. The interaction with them stopped altogether when I pointed out that the United Nations General Assembly Resolution 55-25, adopted on the 15th of November 2000, the protocol to prevent, suppress and punish trafficking in persons, especially women and children, supplementing the United Nations Convention Against Transnational Organised Crime, defines removal of organs as trafficking in persons. The hospital CEO quit a few months later, failing to shed any light on the chain of custody of my organ. I might be going out on a limb here, but aren't human remains disposed of by incarceration? From ashes to ashes? The church has a relatively good track record in that sort of activity. But could they have, by mistake spoilated some vital piece of evidence and made it disappear by sprinkling it like ashes in the wind? I would not like to think that, and it would be really helpful if the hospital CEO just honestly provided the chain of custody log, 
so I could check who was last in possession of that organ. Someone must know, because placentas don't move about on their own. The only thing I could find out, however, was that any property left in a public building, such as a hospital, becomes automatically the property of the state, if the owner does not return to collect it. Is that how my member became to be deemed as a member of the civil society? For the sake of avoiding any misconceptions, my member is not a member of the civil society, nor a member of any ecumenical organisation. My member is my immemorial possession, something I was given before I even had to re-member anything, something that was created without any participation by unidentified government officials foreign to me. Why I never intend to identify as. Long before anyone talked about digital identities, Thomas Paine wrote in The Rights of Man, A man must have existed before governments existed. There necessarily was a time when government did not exist, and consequently there could originally exist no governments to form such a compact, referring to social contract with. The fact that there must be that, each in his own sovereign right, entered into a compact with each other to produce a government, and this is the only mode in which governments have the right to arise, and the only principle on which they have a right to exist. Add to that, Nemo plus Iuris transferre ad alium potest quam ipse habet. No one can transfer more rights to another than he himself has. And now you have a fairly good idea of what the inherent rights of men are, and why the state and regency administrators, habitually referred to as government officials, are so adamant in altering those rights to something that is more manageable to them. Just as the registered person has no substance other than paper and bits created by some unidentified administrator, the government has no authority on me, the man, without first tricking me into identifying as their fictitious creation, making me subject to its rights. I do not consent to that. Sublato fundamento cadit opus. Upon removal of the foundation, the work collapses. Dear participants and other readers, a database entry cannot alter reality. Fictio cadit veritati. And this document closes today by, colon, an unidentified author. I'd like to leave you to consider the contents of this document if you're so inclined, and feel free to visit the webpage to download the PDF and examine that. And I want to remind you, based on the information in this document, that you are something incredibly special.